<laughs> With great joy, they go. <laughs> so we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. It's a great book. We're pressing on. We're at verses 1 to 12. Saying over and over again, there are two introductions, two conclusions, six major judges, six minor judges, and one anti-judge, Abimelech, that are teaching us about God's great salvation through Jesus. So we are halfway through the major judges. Uh, We've survived Othniel, Ehud, uh, Deborah, and then the triple team of Deborah, Barak, and Jael. And we're going to start, the the stories start to get longer as as salvation requires, well, it gets more complex. You know, the, the chaos ensues, and so God's salvation becomes more surprising. And so we're going to look at Gideon today. And so let's read the beginning of this story, the, the setting, in Judges chapter 6. This is God's word. The people of Israel did what was evil on the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And we'll stop there. This is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's pray. Uh, Father God in heaven, we can relate to being afraid and running to to strongholds, other places for help. And so we pray now that we would, as we see Jesus, run to you as our stronghold, as our fortress, that we would find our comfort and our security in the only place that may be found, Christ himself. So set us free from the deceitfulness of our hearts and free from the tyranny of our fears as we see how much you love us in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the surprising things that God promises over and over again in the Scriptures is a, is a simple thing. It's a hopeful thing. And when I say it, you're going to say, oh, I know. 
But we forget it, especially in the thick of, well, Midianite oppression. See, the hope of the Bible is that you and I can change. People can be changed. That, that God is more, this is the message of the scriptures, God is more committed to you being changed than, than you and I are. And that, that's our hope as we come to this passage, that, that we are in the process of being changed if you are following Jesus. Right? That we have help. We have a helper, the Holy Spirit. That the Christian life begins by faith with the good news of our justification and our adoption, that we have a Father who's training us to, to live in relationship with him, right? Justification is a gift where Christians are treated as though they are perfect. Even though in reality we are not there yet, we have not yet arrived. But all is forgiven and we are declared perfect even though we are far from it. Much like Gideon who's terrified being called, O brave one, O mighty man of valor. It's what he will become. But the process of following Jesus, Jesus is at work in us to work out our salvation, to work out his will in us. He's relentlessly going work to change us, to free us what I'm going to call the tyranny of sin, the self-destructive habits that we have. And even that process of being changed, that's a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's like the catechism says, sanctification is a work of God's free grace where we're being renewed being remade into the image of Jesus, where we learn to die to these destructive things, sin, and made alive uh, following Jesus, being righteous. And yet I know what happens even as I say these things. Um, we know that change is slow. We can feel like Israel. Israel yet again did evil, and yet again they're in trouble. They are in these self-destructive patterns over and over again. There are days where I just feel the reality Jesus, I did that again. I hate it. And so, as we come to our passage this morning, it's helpful to just frame this, that God really is committed to you and Jesus to, to change you. And what keeps me from changing and what keeps Israel from changing, uh, the diagnosis here is idolatry. This thing keeps getting in the way. Jesus is going to go relentlessly after the idols of your heart with uncomfortable grace and he often does throw through uncomfortable circumstances. And I'm saying that nicely. <laughs> through pain and misery sometimes. Paul Tripp is fond of saying, God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you can never do on your own. Um, where he's saying God will lead you through things that don't feel like good, but they are for your good. And so that's what we're going to, Look at here, God is at work to change Israel, to save them from themselves, and they are miserable and afraid, and they need help fighting their idolatry, and that's where Gideon steps in. And so what I want to do is, is just take, it's going to help to look as we understand the book and the Old Testament, how idolatry works and how it gets in the way of us changing. And so we're going to diagnose our fears this morning, that's point one. We're going to look at how idolatry and fear are connected and then the grace that God gives for our fears. And so let's start with point number one, diagnosing our fears. If you look at Israel, they're miserable. <laughs> they have created dens for themselves. They're living in, mountain, in the mountains, in the hills, in the caves, in the dens, in the strongholds. 
eking out a miserable existence and the latest thorn in their side by God's design, this is judgment trying to get their attention, are the Midianites. It's trying to lead them back into repentance. And the, way, the Midianite way, this is, this is what they're doing, is the Midianites, the Amalekites, and these, these other people from the east, they come up like locusts upon the land, and they're riding their camels, they're devouring everything in sight. And if you've ever seen anything about locusts, right, they are a plague. Right? You can just Google YouTube, BBC, Planet Earth, locusts, and they, they have shots of these millions of locusts. And all you hear are their wings and them chewing on the grass. And they come in and what's left, there's nothing good left. And the cause of these locusts are the Midianites, who are, they're, they're uncountable, and the camels. And this is really a helpful point because camels can drink up to 50 gallons of water in three minutes. All right, so the thirsty camels. Then you got to imagine these massive beasts that were domesticated and used for war, how much food that same camel would eat, and that's just one camel. These camels can't be counted. So probably, just, just this is just how it works. If you have camels, you've got to feed it, and you run out of pasture, it's much easier riding a camel, take your sword, and go take the food from your neighbors. And so the Midianites and Amalekites and all these people from the east have come riding up. They're stronger, they're bigger than Israel. They, they win the war, and everything that Israel has planted gets devoured. And so what you end up with, with are fat Midianite camels and scrawny Israelites miserable. And verse 6 said they were brought low, which is another way of saying they're poor, emaciated. They're starving. And Gideon shows us what it's like to live in, a, in that kind of world. He's beating wheat in a wine press. This, right, separating the wheat from the chaff is tedious work already. But now when you're hiding in a big bin type thing and on your hands and knees and doing it, He's doing that so he's not noticed, so people don't come and take his food. He's terrified. He doesn't want to be found out. Because normally you just throw it up in the air and the dust and the wind will blow the chaff away. And so you have Gideon called a mighty warrior, but he is not there yet. And it's in their misery that Israel cries out to God for help, not apologizing for what they've done in the past to get here, but this hurts. It's just, they're living a, a life of poverty and they're crying out because life stinks. And how does God respond? And this is, this is the, the wonder of the passage. Right? God save me, rescue me, fix the problems in my life. And, and how does God uh, fix your problems? He sends you a prophet. Right? He's, Pastor Jim shows up at your door. <laughs> or myself. Or one of the elders. Right? What God does is he, he wants them to know specifically, how did you get here? Why does your life stink? He sends a prophet to preach uncomfortable grace because God is committing to them, not just being rescued from their circumstances, he's after their hearts. He wants them to change. And the first response is not a fierce warrior, it's a prophet to preach a sermon. And just, just to feel how crazy this is, just imagine that you are out, trapped, you're, you're someone who's good at the boat, or you're trying to sail across the Atlantic, and your boat sinks in a storm, and you're left there in the sun, in an ocean, 
and you're praying over and over again, God save me, God rescue me, I'm starving, I'm wasting away to nothing, and then all of a sudden you look up, and a pastor is coming down in a parachute with his Bible to say, how did you get here? Let's talk about that. That's not what they're asking for, and yet here's what God sends. Because God is concerned about our spiritual health and, and the destructive decisions we make under the tyranny of sin get us into all kinds of problems. And he doesn't just want to write a blank check and say, you do whatever you want now. That's not grace. Grace is saying, let's learn from how you got here. I want, I want you to change so that you love me and I can protect you. All right, so here's the sermon. It's not a warm and fuzzy sermon. It says, I am the Lord your God. I saved you by grace. I brought you up from Egypt. And I've been with you ever since. From the, I've delivered you from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out and gave you their land. I've been nothing but good to you, says God. And then comes the accusation, I am the Lord your God. It's personal here. Hear that word, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites into whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so the sermon content is, I am the Lord your God. I've saved you by grace. I have been saving you by grace. I told you what to do. You didn't listen. And then he says, you committed adultery. You worshiped other gods. So, Here's the deal. We're, we're miserable. We're tired. We're sick. Life is difficult. We want to be set free from our circumstances. God wants us to understand uh, the way our sin fits into the picture. And so sometimes God must give us insight into our own self, as, re- as one commentator puts it, before he gives us safety. The understanding God's way of holiness is more important than the absence of pain at times. We may want out of a bind but God wants us to see our hearts, our idolatry. So he wants to instruct us, not just pacify us. This is uncomfortable grace, because that's not the first things we want to hear. So, point one, what's the diagnosis? Why is Israel miserable and afraid? God's answer is, you have not listened to my voice, you've gone after other gods, you're committing idolatry. All right, second, idolatry and our fears. So this idea of idolatry, it may be foreign. Um, it, it's, it's just an Old Testament way. We are Westerners. It's a, always a cross-cultural experience, but the New Testament talks about idols too. Right? The, it's it's a, a counseling diagnosis as to what is wrong with every human being, that we have idols, things that we love more than God. But before I jump too far ahead... You probably have this question, especially if you are currently suffering, right? Because it sounds like coming here, Pastor, you're saying that my terrible circumstances and my sickness and my misery are all my fault, (laughs) right? Is God punishing me for my sins? And justice asks and smiles no more. We sang that this morning. When through faith uh, and grace in Christ our trust is. And so the idea is sickness, uh, suffering, it's not God's judgment. 
And we have to be really careful about drawing a one-to-one correspondence between what's happening in my life and that thing I did last week. Because who has the wisdom to know what, what exact wrong thing that I've done to, to bring this upon myself? Right? I mean, some of it's common sense. If you go 20 miles over, per hour over the speed limit and you get busted by the cops and you're doing it in a school zone and you lose your, your license and you lose the ability to pay your rent and now you're homeless without the ability to drive, right? You reap what you sow. <laughs> Some things are obvious. We can figure that out. If you don't study for the test, the suffering that follows is on you. You can't blame the professor. And yet, there's just a comforting reality. Sickness, sorrow, some things are just happen because we are in a fallen world. And only Jesus has the wisdom to distinguish what exactly is happening. And so I think of John chapter 9. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his parents? Right? Does this guy stink at life or do his parents? It's a great question, which I'm sure he felt wonderful. And Jesus says, neither. God's going to get glory even in this difficult circumstance. And that's, that's where we're at with Israel. In Israel's case, they know why they're in this circumstance. God told them not to do it, and he told them exactly what would happen when they did it. And so they are suffering because of their idolatry. Much like the student who didn't study for the test, or the one who broke the law on purpose, and then is mad because there's punishment. So, what is idolatry? Well, it's allegiance to other things. Right? Israel is in the caves, the strongholds, the dens, hungry and hurting. They're feeling the hangover of misery that always follows idolatry, of loving things more than God. Right? And so the prophet's sermon is just asking, how is this disobedience working out for you? Right? So what is idolatry? Let's, let's dig in. There's, I've got five thoughts here. I'm going to try and be brief, but they're really helpful. It's the problem of God's people in the Old Testament and the New. Right? John, 1 John chapter 5, it ends with, little children, keep yourself from idols. Idolatry is, is in every human heart. It's a continual temptation. And so we think of idolatry as Westerners, as people literally bowing down to carved sculptures and praying to other invisible spiritual beings. And that does happen in some parts of the world. Uh, it, it doesn't happen as much in America. Right. So one of the definitions I find helpful, and I, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that, this is Tim Keller, he says, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. See, an idol is a God substitute. And so you think about where we've been in Judges. In Judges chapter 2, Israel's described... Right, and their idolatry is described as spiritual adultery. So another way to think about idolatry is just a love problem. It's unhealthy, disordered love. I, loved, I love things in this world too much, and it causes all kinds of problems in my life. Right? So an idol, anything more important than God. And we are infinitely creative at coming up with what those things are, anything in all of creation. Second, Idol worship is the Old Testament way of describing what the New Testament calls desires, desires of the flesh. 
over-desires, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the heart. There are these all-consuming and controlling desires in the New Testament, things that draw us away from our God. And so the Old Testament uses the term idolatry, worshiping other gods. It's the same idea. It helps, helps connect, the, connect the dots. All right, so I can put it this way. I'll keep it silly and simple, but if you... I heard one guy say, I live for the New York Jets. His idol is the New York Jets, which is a real bummer of an idol. <laughs> but if you... Yeah, right? If you... Well, they won the first Super Bowl. But if you tie yourself and you, all your emotional health and well-being to a sports team, you're going to live and die with how well and how poorly they're doing. It's the same thing with anything else in this world. If you tie your emotional health and well-being to what someone thinks of you, you're going to live and die with every word that comes out of their mouth. Unhealthy desires. Same idea. Uh, Third, idolatry is internal. The Bible always points out um, that there's an internal and external side to our idolatry. In, In Ezekiel 14, it talks about human beings taking idols and literally putting them in their heart and setting that idol right in front of their face. And so they have this picture of, I love this thing and I'm always staring at it, but I love it because it's in my heart, and my heart is what controls me. And so you take something like Israel, they just wanted to be blessed, they wanted to be comfortable, they wanted to be safe, they wanted to be secure, and what they did is they went after the gods of the Amorites and say, you, come into my heart, I will worship you, I will love you, I'll give you all my time, my energy, my work, my labor, and in return, please bless me. Keep me safe. And they just stared at it. It's, it's everywhere they go. I mean, literally in Gideon's family, you're gonna read, we're going to read next week, in their village they have the idol right there. It's right next to them in the village. It's, it's always seen. Idolatry is internal. Right? And so you can think about it this way. If all you do is worry about your health and well-being, if... if if safety and security is your idol, you're miserable. It's going to lead to all kinds of thoughts about your health, about your retirement plan, um, about your comfort and security. I mean, it leads to constant anxiety. That's why we have this thing called helicopter parenting. I want my kids to be safe. It's a good thing. And then our kids go nuts because we won't leave them alone. <laughs> right? Scared of everything. So, you know what, what idolatry does, is we, we, especially when it comes to fear, we just run around with those questions and say, what if I don't get what I want? Right, what are the what ifs in your life? And so you're getting the idea, idolatry is about what we love too much. Israel went after the gods of the Amorites because they asked those gods, those idols, to do something that only Yahweh could do. And it, it happened because because of something they loved, they were pursuing in the beginning. And that's why Judges 6 gives them a prophet, it gives them a sermon to say, how did you get here? Because we loved this thing too much. And what's interesting is they're hiding in strongholds. They're running to these strongholds for protection. One of the self-descriptors in the Psalms of God is a stronghold. And so there's it's Psalm 18. It's this picture of them running to other places for seven years, trying to, get, trying to fix the problem themselves, and, and it's not working. 
because they're being ruled and controlled by these unhealthy desires. So, idolatry is this internal problem. What's gripping your imagination is probably where your idols are. Christians are not immune to these things. Right? Fourth, idolatry is a constant external temptation. And this is how Israel got in the mess, because they're surrounded by people who don't believe like them, which should sound familiar. They had neighbors who didn't know the Lord. They had people who were nice and comfortable occasionally when they didn't get mad and oppress them. But they saw their neighbors being blessed. And we read in the beginning, well, they, they married their children. And so what happens is, just the way Israel lived, they lived their life surrounded by all these options of what to worship, and they couldn't say no. You know, the, the internal problem was a perfect uh, matchmaker with all these external things, and it got them in trouble. And so what happens is we have these things we want, and as we walk around, it's like, it's like they're calling us by name. In, in Israel's case, it was literal gods. In our case, we have, well, just go to the mall. All these billboards calling you, promising, blessing. Right? John Bunyan had a great way to describe this in Pilgrim's Progress. He called it Vanity Fair. Um, following Jesus is hard, and what it's like is like, you've been to the fair when people are trying to bug the bejeepers out of you into spending all your money. And uh, that's what it's like to live in this world where you're, you're being called, you're being seduced, you're being invited to come buy this thing. It'll change your life forever. Come, come take it, right? Buy it and you will, you will thrive. Right? If you have this dish soap, the commercials promise, <laughs> your spouse will turn out beautiful. Uh, this, this vacation experience, this TV, this job, this spouse, then your life will be worth living. And in our case, Vanity Fair it doesn't sound like the gods of the Amorites. It would probably be QVC, the mall, Amazon, Netflix, iPhones, all mixed up into this perfect cocktail alongside our desires to be not lonely and not suffering. And you can see Vanity Fair is a complicated place. The varieties, the idols on display that are shiny and beautiful, calling and demanding your attention are endless. The human heart is an idol factory. Idolatry is tough. <laughs> right? This is where we live. Right? We live in a constant external ba battle, being assaulted daily by the prom false promises of what idols can do for us. And that's why Bunyan says, as Christians, he's writing to Christians, you have to let the kingdom of Jesus always be before you and believe steadfastly that Jesus is real, the things are invisible. Let nothing that is on this side of the other world get within you, and above all, look well to your own hearts and your own desires, because they're deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So set your faces like a flint. You have all power in heaven and on earth on your side. Don't give in. Which sounds lovely but it's easier said than done. And that's my fifth point here. Idolatry promises godlike blessing, but it, these other strongholds will leave you with Israel still scared and afraid. It is. This is a painful diagnosis to really get to know yourself, and I'm just giving you the, the big idea 
But you got to ask, what are you choosing to run? Where do you choose to run to when you're afraid, when you're anxious? Do you pull out the thing and start scrolling on social media? Do you open up a can, a quart of ice cream? Uh, There's retail therapy. It just feels good sometimes to have something new and exciting. Where's your pattern? What's your favorite cave to hide in? Because what happens is, those are promising to do for you what only Jesus can do. Vanity fair, it's just a vapor. That thrill will be there and then gone again the next day. I can put it this, here's a modern day example. Here's this amazing video of Lady Gaga, the, the pop culture star. She gets anxious. You think of someone at the top who's, who's achieved a name for herself. She is, um, she's one of the most influential persons on our culture, publicly. And she talks about before one of her shows in Madison Square Gardens, it's sold out, and she said, I was in the worst mood on the way here. I get so worked up for these shows because I still feel like a loser, like a loser in high school where I have to pick myself up and tell, tell myself I'm a superstar. And she goes out and feeds off the applause of her fans, only to have to repeat the process at the next show. See, the idols promise a feast, and they leave you starving. They don't deliver. So, how do you go to war with your idolatry? And this is the final point here, and it will lead us to the table. Grace in the midst of our fears. We've heard the diagnosis. The problem is idols, uh, loving other things in God too much. But what God does, well, look at the sermon. Do you notice what's missing? Because the normal sermon in the Old Testament, right, we have judgment, we have accusation, right, you have the history of God's grace, I've been nothing but good to you. You got the reminder of God's commands, here's what you're supposed to do. You have the accusation, you didn't listen to my voice, and this sermon just stops. That's the end. Usually there's a, therefore, you shall know I am the Lord when I smoke you and all my enemies. Judgment. Usually the Old Testament has, you didn't listen to my voice, therefore there is judgment coming your way. Justice would be to let Israel deal with the problem themselves because they've made clear they don't love God as he loves them. But the next thing you get in the story in verse 11 is an angel sitting under the tree getting ready to recruit Gideon to rescue them, promising to work out salvation and forgiveness while Israel is still God's enemies. Expecting judgment, Israel's given rescuing grace in the midst of the tyranny of their idolatry. Israel is dead in their trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, raises up Gideon, a new Moses figure, which we'll talk about next week. This is amazing. While actively engaged in spiritual idolatry and adultery, God rescues them. And who would make up a God like this? See, God's response to our fears and to our idolatry is, is the same, similar pattern. We have someone better than Gideon, a mighty warrior, Jesus. And what's fascinating as you come to the New Testament, Jesus is the only one who had the power, the strength, as he walks through the vanity fair, so to speak, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. 
Idolatry had no hold on Jesus. Nor did he bow down at the altar of safety and security, even when life hurt. Remember when Jesus was in the desert, he was baptized, he was told, God loves you, you are my son in whom I delight, my beloved son, and immediately the Spirit takes him into the desert to be tempted. And one of the things that Satan tries to trip him up with is safety and security. If you are God's son, surely you would not suffer like this. God is love, you would not be hungry, you would not be in danger. And so he takes him up to the top of a temple and say, well, just jump. Let's, let's prove it once and for all that God will defend you. Jump, because he's promised in the scriptures that his angels will protect you. They will not even let your foot hit a stone. And Jesus responds, don't put God to the test. And what does he do? In Luke, he steals his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, saying no to comfort, saying no to convenience and security because God is his stronghold. And he trusts that even if God does not protect him, he still is God's beloved son, even to death on a cross. The grace and forgiveness. See, for us Christians, our idolatry has already been forgiven. The rescue has already happened. God can't be punishing you with his justice for your idolatry right now. But he can use your circumstances and does use your circumstances to pull you away from your idols, to draw you away from these things that are destroying you, to rest in Christ alone for salvation. See, when Jesus, our stronghold, went to the cross, God left him under the judgment. He wasn't safe. He was destroyed so that we would have that security, that permanent security that we have in Jesus. His resurrection purchased your forgiveness, your perfection in Christ, and your victory over death. So what do you have to be afraid of? These are real fears. They do tempt and call us to to wander away. But the good news of the gospel is you are immortal, immortal and untouchable until Jesus is done with you. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Actually, he does let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So you would cry out for mercy. So we are now being learned to trust the one whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, shed to secure our way to God, to learn how to trust him. You have all heaven and an authority, all authority in heaven and on earth on your side. How can you not trust this Jesus when you see him brought low, oppressed, brutalized, so that you could be lifted up by his grace, fed, set free? So the Lord's Supper, as we come to the table, This is our weapon against idolatry. We eat and we drink to fatten up our souls on his grace, to taste and see that he is good. He feeds us the finest things, his most cherished possession, his beloved son. And so this is is what we're going to do here. And, And what we're doing is putting our idols to death as we see them dying, that ugly death with Christ on the cross. And he says, now follow me. I am with you. I will not leave you alone. You are safe. Let's pray. Father, we got a glimpse of the ugliness of idolatry and the beauty of perfection in Jesus. And so I pray now as we come to the table, you would not only convict us of sin, but make this cross shine much bigger 
in our eyes so that would draw us away from these strongholds where we are crying out for help and we would come running to the foot of the cross receiving by faith alone what you have already gifted us in in the Son. So do that mysterious work as we gather together as your people on our hearts that we would love these things that are not Jesus a little bit less so that we would be set free to love and serve you, to love our neighbor and to make Christ known across the street and around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.